It's the first place many Americans land in Europe, and it's one of the world's top travel destinations, packed with icons. Big Ben, Westminster Abbey, the changing of the guard, and all those black cabs. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. London is a must-see, but it's also one of the world's most expensive and overwhelming cities. Even though there's no language barrier, well, almost, London can be a challenge. Coming up this hour, we'll get tips from an expert, certified blue badge guide in London, Jillian Chadwick. And if the crowds and weather in London aren't to your liking, but you'd still like a touch of the British Empire, there's always Bermuda. Not quite Caribbean, not quite British, not quite American, the Bermuda Islands are a world apart. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, guidebook author Rosemary Jones brings us a short overview. Or is that a shorts overview? That's Bermuda. We're all queued up and ready to go right after this. Mind the Gap. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'd call it Europe's most expensive city and well worth the price. We're traveling to London up next. And our guide, who just got off the plane from Heathrow Airport, Jillian Chadwick, is dropping by to get us right up to date on the city she knows and loves. We'll cover London from Twiggy to Big Ben next on Travel with Rick Steves. And a little later this hour, put together a decidedly British sensibility in the not-quite-subtropical Atlantic, and you'll find pirate history, celebrity hideaways, stylishly goofy shorts, and one end of a mysterious triangle. We'll follow the Gulf Stream to Bermuda as we travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now, that means London. I've got with me Jillian Chadwick. That's a wonderfully English name. And Jillian is from West Sussex. It's south of London, near Brighton. She's been a blue badge guide in London and in the travel industry for 25 years. She's busy taking people around Britain, uh, venturing over onto the continent, and specializing mostly in the greatest city in Britain, London. And today, we're going to talk specifically about London. We've got some people on the line. We've got some email um, questions going on. And it's just great to have you here, Jillian. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Now, you live, first of all, you live in West Sussex. That seems like a contradiction. West and Sussex is south. That's right, South Saxon. South Saxon area, mm. and it's down on the south coast of England. It is. Near Brighton. Uh-huh. Brighton is like the uh, Coney Island, I think, of Britain in a lot of ways. It's London on sea, really. Because it's really um, just an hour away by, by train, right? Yep. Now, you commute into London to do your touring. I do, yes. Uh, an hour on the train, and that works? Uh-huh. Great. Now, London is like a, to me, it's a collection of villages. And the more you know it, the more each different area has its own personality and so on. Is that still true or is that absolutely. changing? Absolutely. No, it's absolutely still the case. What, uh, for example, Hampstead, you know Hampstead? Oh, yeah. It still feels like a village. It's an artist's quarter. Lots of famous actors live there. Uh, Highgate as well, North London. And then Notting Hill, which a lot of people will know from the movie. Right. Still feels like a little village. Chelsea. Chelsea, definitely. Brixton, a little bit of the developing world. Yeah, that's very uh, cosmopolitan. Now, when you're talking about London, uh, sometimes you think um, Gillian Chadwick and nice English accents, but actually in London itself, you'll find more of the rest of the world than you will elsewhere in England. It's quite a uh, multi-ethnic mix these days. Definitely, very much the case. And there are sections of London which have one ethnic minority. For example, Southwark is a lot of Indian people. What used to be the Jewish quarter in the East End is now Bangla Town, so it's people from Bangladesh. Really? What yes. would be the four or five major ethnic um, centres outside of English people in London? Uh, definitely the well, there's uh, the Edgware Road, which is near Marble Arch, near Oxford Street. That's uh, like Little Lebanon, Lebanese hmm. quarter. Hmm. Then there's the Bangladesh quarter in the East End, um, Brixton. Caribbean, West Indian, that kind of thing. Uh, there's still Chinatown, of course, in the centre of London. And not so much now the Italian district, but uh, still a few Italians in Clerkenwell. So is there a lot of Arab money in London? Yes. North yeah. of Hyde Park, that area? That's right, yeah. Some of the 
most expensive properties. So if you really want Lebanese food or if you want Caribbean food or, mm-hmm. or if you want Pakistani, you, you know where to go as Absolutely. a Londoner. Absolutely, yes. How would, you, how would a tourist learn about this? Because this is something we've got to get away when, from. Most Americans or a lot of Americans, they go to London and they want fish and chips. But that's not really it anymore. No. How would you learn ab- uh, about where these good restaurants are? There are various publications, for example, Time Out. I love uh, Time Out. It's the first thing I buy when I get there. Either Time Out or What's On, I think it is. Yes, yeah. But Time Out actually has uh, a food book publication. So that will list all the different restaurants, actually, in categories of nationality. This is excellent. And it's very easy to find. They have these, I think they're monthly entertainment guides, very competitive. There's Time Out and What's On, I believe. Mm-hmm. And Time Out produces an annual food guide, like a a guidebook, like a tourist guide or, or a, somebody who wants just a listing and a recommendation of all the restaurants, which is very, very good and very cutting edge, I think, for London, better than the kind of guidebooks that I write. I mean, the American guidebook writer coming into town, they can prepare Americans for the once over lightly and so on. But boy, the local magazines that produce their own local guidebooks for London, I think, are excellent. Mm-hmm. London had a huge uh, amount of building for the Millennium Festivities. Mm-hmm. What do you reckon are the best uh, remnants of the Millennium building boom for us travelers now? What should we be tuned into and what would a guidebook from 1999 not be able to help us on, you know? The three main London projects were the London Eye, the Millennium Wheel, which of course is still there, uh, the Millennium Bridge, which joins the Tate Modern to St. Paul's Cathedral, and the Millennium Dome. Even though the Millennium Dome is not open, it's still very much in evidence. You can't really miss it. Now, this dome was like the size of... You could fit our super stadiums inside it, I think. It was mammoth, and it was like a billion pounds spent or something like this. 758 million pounds, to be precise. And considered a... Huge fiasco. Mm-hmm. It was down there, downriver, like by uh, Greenwich or something. You could see it from Greenwich, I think. Yes, yep. And uh, I went there, and it was supposed to be big news. But you got there, and it just didn't feel right. And to make matters worse, I don't think they figured out what to do with it now. I mean, five years later, it's just a big – isn't it just a big vacant lot they have flea markets in or something like this? The plan is to – there's an American gentleman called um, Unschutz who runs the Quest Corporation. He apparently has – bought it and he's going to turn it into a concert hall and sports stadium. And maybe some American uh, creative ingenuity there is going to turn it into a money-making venture, but I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> exactly. You mentioned the uh, the Millennium Bridge. Mm-hmm. It's got a nickname, the... Uh, Spear, Wobbly Bridge. The wob- I was thinking of a more complimentary, <laughs> the Spear of Light or something like that. You know what I mean? A super futuristic bridge. Beautiful thing because it, it's got beautiful views on both sides and it sort of extends downtown London over to the South Bank, right? Certainly, yes. So you can walk from St. Paul's Cathedral just right across to the new Tate Gallery. That's right. Tate Gallery of Modern Art. But you mentioned the Wobbly Bridge. Yes. Did they get that straightened out? As soon as they built it, opening it up, uh, they had to close it down right away, didn't they? Yeah, it was open for three days, and thousands of people were crossing it, and it was wobbling from side to side. So they closed it, and then they spent another £5 million stabilizing it. Is it okay now? It's fine, yeah. I and just, it's beautiful. It's a it beautiful is. bridge. It is a beautiful pedestrian bridge, a pedestrian bridge over mm. the mighty Thames. And the Thames is so exciting these days. And mm-hmm. to be on it without all the traffic roaring is quite nice. And it also makes the South Bank sort of part of the neighborhood as you visit the, the core of old London and the city. You mentioned also the um, London Eye. Mm-hmm. And they say that the uh, cheapest way to fly British Air is to take the uh, biggest Ferris wheel around for a circuit. It's the Technically, it's not a Ferris wheel. I think they call it an observation wheel or something. It's like a big bicycle wheel mm-hmm. built and owned by – no, owned by British Air. Is that right? Sponsored by British Airways. I'm not okay. sure whether they actually own it. And I, I understand they originally made it expecting to have it up for the festivities and so on and then taking it down after a while. Or, or what, what is the future of that now? It was supposed to be up for five years, but it's making so much money. It's a bit like the Eiffel Tower in Paris. It's making so much money that they'll probably keep it forever. That's true. They built the Eiffel Tower intending to just kind of show off what they could do with this giant erector set of the uh, Industrial Revolution, have a big party, and then take it back down. But they got it up there, and uh, it happened to coincide with Marconi's need for a radio beacon, I think. Uh And they kept it up. Same thing in London. You got this incredible Ferris wheel right across the river from Big Ben. And now you have this glorious vantage point. You step into these giant bubbles... And it takes, what, about a half hour to go around? Half an hour. One circuit. Cost you about $10 or something like that. Used to involve a long wait and, and reservations, but I think now you can just walk right onto it. When I was there during the heat wave last year, I looked at it and it was empty. And it was going around and I thought, my goodness, the crowds have really tailed off. But they closed it down because it was so hot it actually overworked their air conditioning on them. They didn't want to have mm. 
roasted tourist after the 40-minute cycle, you know. But I'm sure that's okay today, and that's a wonderful new site in London to see from the millennium. London is dealing with um, problems that plague big cities like many big cities are, and one of them is traffic congestion. They've got this new congestion fee, right? That's right. Can you explain how that's going? What is it? Any private vehicle coming into the central zone has to pay £5 per day. And that's between, I think it's 8 in the morning and 6.30 at night. So if a tourist or a resident from outside of London drives in, they're going to pay basically the equivalent of $10 just to go past this uh, marker in the street. That's right. How do they monitor that? They have cameras at all the entrance points. And if you don't pay, they photograph all of the registration plates. Wow. And if you don't pay, then you get fined. Now, Gillian, I'm talking, by the way, with Gillian Chadwick, and she's giving us uh, an insider's look at London. And uh, this congestion fee, my understanding is they recognized, and if you've been there, you know it's true, that traffic congestion was horrible in downtown London. So they established a central zone which costs to go into, and basically it's free for, uh, I guess, uh, taxis, buses, uh, service vehicles, That's and right. residents. Yes. And anybody else pays the equivalent of 10 bucks to come in for the day. The notion was cut down the traffic. Let that money generated subsidize public transit, enabling buses to go more frequently and cheaper, and with less traffic, buses get around quicker. Mm -hmm. It sounds like a beautiful notion. Has it been successful? Definitely. That is brilliant. Yeah. Are other cities trying this, do you know? They're planning to. But now Ken Livingstone, the, the mayor of London, has suggested putting up the congestion charge to £8 a day. Wow. Which is a big hike, £3 extra. So there's a big hoo-ha about that. Ken, Red Ken. Red Ken. He's, the right. he's still in power? He's the mayor of he London? He certainly is. He has some visions. Tell me, he's got this nickname of Red Ken because he's very socialistic in his uh, endeavors like this congestion fee. What else has Red Ken done that is controversial but progressive? Uh, well, the Trafalgar Square pigeons. He managed to prevent all the pigeons living and roosting in the square by banning the sale of uh, pigeon food. That must have been a little controversial for some people. It has. Well, there's still people that come to the square every day and feed the pigeons, but, but the, they but are But the booth less. is gone. Yes, the booth I is heard gone. he had to buy off that guy who ran the booth. I didn't know about that. Yeah, he had to give him like 100,000 pounds or something, and the guy's living in uh, Spain now. Quite oh, excellent. Quite, quite comfortably for a pigeon seed salesman. <laughs> but I remember for years going to Trafalgar Square and having pigeons crawling all over me and getting photographs and feeding them with the, you know 10 pence for a little bucket of seed and so on. Then I learned that the pigeons on Trafalgar Square were losing their toenails because of a disease related to standing in their own uh, waist. Ooh. And that's not a nice thing when you've got pigeons crawling all over you. So no. maybe there's hygienic reasons we've gotten rid of London's flying rats. Absolutely, yeah. What about the gentrification or the development of the South Bank? When mm -hmm. I first started traveling in London, this was dangerous. It was dark. Nobody went there. It was just like warehouses. Mm -hmm. I think it was warehouses in ancient times also. And then now it is really the trendy place. This is the whole south bank of the Thames River. Um, there's something called the Jubilee Walk where you can actually walk from Westminster Bridge all the way to the Tower, I believe, right along the bank. It's a beautiful jogging trail and so on. Mm -hmm. Colorful pubs, some new museums. How's that going? And what's the latest with the uh, development of the South Bank? It's a complete transformation. Uh, there's a new wine museum, Vinopolis. There's the Globe Theatre, Shakespeare's New Globe. And it's always really, really busy there and lots of new restaurants. Feed the birds. Tuppence a bird. Feed the birds. Tuppence a bag. Tuppence, tuppence. More on London with Gillian Chadwick as Travel with Rick Steves continues. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
call us at 877-333-RICK. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today I'm talking with Jillian Chadwick, a certified blue badge guide in her hometown of London. London, to me, is the most expensive city in Europe. It's just brutal from a hotel point of view mm-hmm. and an eating point of view. Uh, do you have any tips for uh, visitors to London, how they might get around some of the high, high cost of London? There are places that you can eat reasonably. Uh, you just have to know where they are. And again, that Time Out magazine is mm-hmm. excellent because it does categories in cost as well as uh, type of restaurant. And the bed and breakfasts are possible in London, but I would remind people to choose your neighborhoods carefully. We have an email question from Tom in Brea, California. He wants to know, where are the small towns in Britain that Londoners go for a getaway? Uh, Jillian, if if, uh, you or another Londoner wanted to get away, what's a good uh, destination from London that's convenient? Uh, One that springs to mind immediately is one called Rye. Right, that's in Sussex, so right. I'm slightly biased. I think that won the prize is the most photogenic town in England one year or something it's like this. Just, just so gorgeous and so English. And it's missed by a lot of Americans. Yes. That, and Canterbury is down there and Dover. I was very impressed by Dover. People think of Dover just as you know the gateway to the English Channel, but it is a great site from a sightseeing point in itself. But all along that, what do you call that coast, the Sussex area? Uh, Sussex and Kent, yes. Sussex and Kent. You've got gorgeous little villages. Um, Gillian, for a lot of Americans, they want to go to one of the great university towns in England, and of course we think of Oxford and Cambridge. Mm -hmm. But I think if you have less than a month, you should not do both Oxford and Cambridge. That's redundant. I would say choose one or the other of the great university towns and make more time on your itinerary for something, uh, for a little more variety. Which of the uh, university towns would you recommend and why? I know Oxford better, um, but I think Cambridge is probably nicer. Uh, the trouble is, is that Oxford's near other places, so you can combine a trip to Oxford with one to Stratford-upon-Avon or to the the Cotswolds, whereas Cambridge is slightly out on its own. So as a tour guide, you're probably taking people out on day trips, and it would make sense to emphasize Oxford because you're right by Blenheim to see Blenheim, uh, yes. the great Blenheim Palace, the most wonderful, I think, uh, countryside palace in England, Yes, and then Stratford and the Cotswolds. Mm-hmm. Let's go to one of our calls. We've got Debbie in Denver standing by, and Debbie is planning a trip to the Cotswolds with her daughter. And the Cotswold villages are really just a couple hours from London and arguably one of the best side trips from downtown London if you want to get into the village England. What are your questions or thoughts about the Cotswold villages? Well, um, I've heard about a hike that you can take through the Cotswold villages, you know, and you basically start out at one end and you kind of just work your way through the fields and the meadows and whatnot and um, stay at the different villages along your way. And I was just curious, where do you start? Where do you end? Um, private property, can you cut through that? or? Jillian, any thoughts on the hiking in the Cotswolds? You can hike practically anywhere. We have uh, this system in, this, in England of uh, public footpaths. And although they cross private land... Uh, by law, you're allowed to use those paths. As a matter of fact, you English people are pretty enthusiastic about that. You can walk everywhere in the Cotswolds if you respect the property you're walking across. Definitely. Whether they're marked trails or anything, or just you just go for it? Yes, there are marked trails. And if you go and stay in one of the beautiful villages like Burford, Mm -hmm. and there's lots of little shops that will... Uh, sell the books that give you the different trails. Yeah, Debbie, I would say don't get too hung up on a certain eight-day hike, but right. get, get a guidebook to the Cotswolds. You know, my guidebook to England wouldn't be quite right because it's much more general for people with a car or train. You want a guidebook designed for walkers. And then buy a good local ordnance survey map. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's 1 to 50,000 is the uh, scale that okay. really is designed for walkers. And I would say you could do your studying, and I think you'd be wise to make your uh, B&B reservations in advance. Mm-hmm. And uh, just call the people up, nail down those reservations, and then, uh, boy, you're, it'll just be delightful. Remember, in England, they say there's no bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. <laughs> okay, so you anticipate rain. You okay. want Gore-Tex waterproof boots, and you want a good layer it for It gets hot and cold depending on the sun and the rain and the wind. But the most important thing I would say is study aggressively ahead of time to get a sense of what villages you want to walk together, and you will be getting a, completely away from all of the noise and congestion and crowds, and you'll have the wonder of rural, small town and village England. I really look forward to that. I really do. Uh, one other question with that. Um, you know, a lot of the um, boundary lines are marked, I, I, you know, what I see with stone fences or yeah. walls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, are there openings where you get through, or do you hop it, or what? 
Yes, they have what we call styles where you, you walk over, there's a little ledge that you okay. can walk over. So, yes, there's always access through them. It's, that's good. a very interesting uh, question or insight, Debbie, is just they've got these glorious um, hedges and stone fences and ancient fences, but all of them have um, gates or stepping stones built into them because you can't keep people out. Right. And I used to do a photo essay just collecting all the different kinds of gates. They've got kissing gates mm -hmm. that are kind of <laughs> characteristic, and they've got a lot of gates that let people through but not the sheep and That's so right. on. But rest assured, you can get through or over those walls, and you are legally entitled to do that. Ah, that's perfect. And the train, easy access, you know, from any village, is that right, to get back to where we started? or No, that's why the Cotswolds are so beautiful is because they have miserable public transportation. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. There's only a few villages that still have stations. Okay. And, and that's my challenge in writing my guidebook coverage to the Cotswolds is giving people the convenient entry and exit like you're talking about. But do remember that they handle the gap by the public transit by having taxi services pretty readily available and fairly reasonable. So cool. when you want to go somewhere for 20 or 30 bucks, you just hop in a taxi and they'll take you to the nearest train station. Oh, that's perfect. Have a great time. Thanks for your Thank call, you Debbie. Thank you so much. You bet. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, we got Laura on the line from Philadelphia, and Laura has worked in the United Kingdom and figures that's a, a good way to get to know the country on a budget. Great. Well, thanks for your call. Tell us more about your experience working in England. Well, I had loved the U.K. so much. I visited there a couple of times when I was in college, so after I graduated, I decided to go through a program called BUNAC and actually work there for six months, which was great because I couldn't have afforded to travel for that long otherwise. Hmm. So you worked there and just used that as a base to explore Britain. Exactly, yeah. I lived in London. Um, I worked at a press agency, and then I also worked at a pub sometimes, and then I was able to travel around to Scotland and to Oxford and Norwich while I was there, and I got to see a lot of the country and also really got to know London very well. Boy, with the, with the way the dollar is right now and how high the pound is, it's almost $2 for a pound these days. It'd be nice to have that sort of a base, and then you could live like a local person, have your own kitchen in your apartment or whatever. Absolutely. It was really great because then I actually got to meet many more Londoners that way from people that I worked with and even just the people who ran the local corner shop. And definitely the, the pound to the dollar exchange <laughs> makes it a lot easier that way. Now, you worked in a pub. How'd you get your job in a pub? Um, I just walked in and applied. Um, it only took me a few days to actually find a job. I hadn't arranged anything before I left the U.S. So did they, did I was they pay really you? Lucky, and um, it was so much fun working in the pub and actually meeting people from all over the world there. Did they pay you legally or did they pay you cash under the table? Yeah, with the program that I went, went through with BUNAC, you, you actually have um, a legal work permit and you can work at any job for, oh. for up to six months. So it was great. You worked in a pub in London? Yes, I did. Great. Well, thanks for your call, Laura. And uh, I think that's good advice is to, uh, if you want to spend a little time and spend a little, and make a little money instead of spend a little money, find a way to get a job over there. I wanted to, We're talking with Gillian Chadwick today, and we're talking about traveling in London. You know, the Thames River is just the, such a, a powerful part of the whole London scene. And something that I've enjoyed lately is there's more and more boats going up and down the Thames River that you can incorporate into your sightseeing. Absolutely. There's one boat which I tell people about, which is called Tate to Tate. And it goes from the Tate Modern down to the Tate Britain. So you can see modern art in the morning and British art in the afternoon. Old, so now, old uh, British art. So the Tate Gallery that we all know and love is now two Tate Galleries. That's right. It used to be mixing the uh, old British and the modern together. And uh, thankfully, with the millennium, I guess, they opened up the, they, what do they do? Renovated an old power plant. Power station, yeah. Yeah, and this huge uh, industrial age brick building is now filled with cutting edge, off the wall modern art. But it's in a different part of town. But they're both on the Thames River. So they have this shuttle boat connecting the Tate British, where you see your Turners and, mm -hmm. and your Pre-Raphaelites and so on. That's right. Down with the uh, Tate Modern. Mm -hmm. Is there a commentary on that boat or is it just straight no, transportation? No, I don't think there is. But on the other boats, they have commentaries. Great commentaries on other boats, yeah. yeah. Uh, one thing interesting about the Thames River is beachcombing. Do you ever go beachcombing on the Thames River? I never have, but it's becoming more popular. I found little um, stem stems of pipes really? from, from the old uh, Victorian days and so on. The chalk pipes. Chalk pipes. Oh. Apparently the tobacco came in uh, disposable pipes and you'd use your pipe and you'd toss it into the river. Mm -hmm. And they had uh, the old uh, slate roofs from before the fire that they, they changed over to some other kind of... No, they had the old uh, clay roofs, and they changed over to a different kind of roof for some reason after the fire. And you've got this bits of history actually laying on the beach in the Thames because the Thames is tidal, isn't it? it That's goes, right. So at low tide, you got yourself like vast stretches of mucky uh, ground you can comb through if you're a historian with, uh, with gloves. Exciting. It's very nice. Gillian, if you're going to London as a tourist, you want to check out the theater. 
Yeah. And it's uh, – I think the theater is a great value in London. Uh, you can get uh, – the theaters are small. You can get a cheap seat and it's not a bad seat. No. What's some advice on enjoying the theater in London? The difficult thing is there's so much choice. It's actually deciding what you want to see. Uh, but we have the half-price ticket booth in Leicester Square where you can get best tickets for half-price. Now, that uh, is a little confusing because you go to Leicester Square by the tube, you come out and you've got every booth saying half-price tickets, and a lot of them are, are just box offices trying to con tourists. Yep. No, the one you have to go to is like a, a little white building with a clock on it in the middle of Leicester Square. Actually on the square. Yeah. That's important. And then how would you know what, what, um, what do you recommend for visitors? That's a very good uh, source. Uh, again, Time Out magazine. The Evening Standard, the London paper, has a listing of all the shows. Um, or if you want to go by price, then go to the half-price ticket booth, and they have it in categories, whether it's comedy or musical. You won't get seats for Phantom of the Opera or... So these are seats on the push list that are going half-price. Yes. So the ones that are very hot, you won't have seats available at the half-price ticket booth. No. But that's not bad. I, my thoughts as a budget traveler is go to last year's big hit, not yes. this year's big hit. Yeah. It's still top quality, and mm-hmm. you don't have the long lines and the scalpers and the ridiculous prices. An important concern for travelers is minimizing crowds. And when you go to London, there's certain well-promoted sites, a lot of sites that aren't very good, that are very, very crowded. I just think the London Dungeon is pretty tacky. Mm-hmm. It's just junior high-style paper mache gore. But everybody likes a dungeon, or all the kids like yeah. a dungeon, so all the families go there, and you wait forever to get into it. Mm-hmm. Madame Tussauds is also very, very crowded, and it's very expensive. Yeah. Uh, whereas you go to the British Museum, the greatest museum in Europe in a lot of ways, ne- never a crowd at all, and yeah, it's free. Right. Yeah. What is your advice for avoiding crowds on sites like, uh, well, where are crowds a concern when you're in London? Well, as you say, the, the, um, the London Dungeon and Madame Two Swords, which I would avoid, don't think they're worth the money. They're very expensive. Um, Tower of London is best to go in the morning rather than the afternoon because a lot of the tour groups uh, tend to go to one of the churches in the morning and then the tower in the afternoon. So if you do it the other way around, you'll avoid the crowds. Boy, that's a good tip. And if you arrive in the morning, even if there is a big crowd, the line at the Tower of London moves quickly. And most people take the Beefeater tour first. And then the Beefeaters uh, say, now you'll go to the Crown Jewels. Well, that'll be a mob scene at the Crown Jewels. And like a Disney ride, it doesn't may not look like a long line outside, but there's a winding serpentine line inside the building. And you mm-hmm. spend an hour waiting to see the, the Crown Jewels. If you go directly to the Crown Jewels when you arrive in the morning, invariably there's no line at all. And you get to the Crown Jewels and they've got like a moving sidewalk that goes by them. And it's no problem to go around and around and you can go by them several times once you get there. And you can even talk to the guards. It's fascinating to talk to the guards and get some insights into those beautiful jewels. Yep, that's a good tip. Another highlight for people when they're going to London is Buckingham House. Or Buck House, right? Mm-hmm. If you say Buck, Buck House. house yeah. Get in a taxi and say Buck House. You sound like a Londoner. People think you're a Londoner, <laughs> yeah. Now, the, the, of course, the thing all the tourists want to do is see the changing of the guard. But now I understand you can tour the palace. And mm-hmm. I was very impressed by the Coach Museum there. Uh-huh. And I've heard that the Queen's Gallery is a wonderful collection of art. What is your advice on the Buckingham Palace? Buckingham Palace, you can only go inside uh, August and September when the Queen's in Balmoral on holiday. So Queen's out. You can go inside. You have to get an appointment. Uh, no. You don't anymore? No. Okay. No, there's a booking office near the palace where you can just go and get your ticket. Is this a way that the Queen's just making money? Um, no comment. No, so the Queen's <laughs> making money by opening up her house uh, two months while she's away. I wish I could do that. Well, it was originally to pay for the damage at Windsor, wasn't it? But that was paid for in 1997. It's all completed. That's right. So they since had a, then, it's just profit. They had a fire, right? Yes. And the Queen needed to, uh, in order to maintain good public relations with her country people, she didn't want to spend taxpayers' money fixing up one of her palaces. So That's right. She raised the money opening up her house to the public. She paid off the fire damage and she realized, yeah, it's easy money. Absolutely. And the tourists like it too. <laughs> Boy, the um, changing of the guard can be very frustrating for people. As a tour guide, you probably take a lot of groups to the changing of the guard. I do, yes. What is the? How can people be a little more savvy to make sure they enjoy the changing of the guard? Well, the way I do it, I take people to St. James's Palace and that the guards leave from there at 11.15. So if you get there about 10 to 11, you watch them congregate and then you march with them and then you feel like you're actually part of it. Then. They let you march with them? Yeah. Yeah, well, you walk along the side I of see. them. Oh, that's great. And then they get up to the big gates of Buckingham Palace. Yes, and then you just wait and then the other guard comes in. 
Otherwise, you have to be at the palace really early. You have to be there quarter to 11. Yeah, my experience is you've got to be very early or very tall to see anything at all because yeah. the changing of the guard is behind those gates. But the real pageantry is out in the street. That's what's fun to see a marching band and all the, oh, yes. the yeah. mounted guards and so on. Yes. Let's go to an email question. Dan in Vancouver, Washington, is planning a trip to London. Then he's going to France. He finds hotels include breakfast and dinner in their prices rather than what is listed in the guidebooks. Is this common practice? Boy, my experience with that is if you go to a hotel that includes dinner in the price, they're trying to get around government regulations because governments limit what they can charge according to how how much quality they're offering for a bed and breakfast rate. But they can uh, squeeze around that by charging too much for the dinner. And uh, consequently, they'll charge people when the demand exceeds the supply. They'll force people to buy dinner there. And that's generally a bad value. Dan, I would personally stay away from hotels that require you to buy dinner there. Uh, for me, one of the joys of traveling is getting out and finding a different kind of restaurant. Any any thoughts on that, Jillian? No, I agree with you, definitely. Another email question. Tom in Fremont, California is visiting London, and he uh, is dealing with the dollar-pound rate, and he found an apartment to pre-rent for £38 a night through researching the Internet. So you could find it. That would be about, I uh, figured, $2 per pound, so that would be about $75 mm-hmm. for an apartment per night. I think that might be a good value, but I'll tell you, I've only been mugged once in my life, and I've spent a quarter of my adult life traveling through Europe, and it was in Brixton. And I went out, I looked in the equivalent of the internet in the old days, just some newspaper. Mm-hmm. I found a cheap apartment, like almost too cheap to be true. Mm-hmm. Went there, and as soon as I got off the bus, I was mugged. It turned out to be an expensive apartment. Mm-hmm. Are there neighborhoods in London you want to be careful of these days? Yes, Brixton being one of them. But normally, most tourists wouldn't go out as far as Brixton. You're, you're an exception, I think. Most tourists will stay in the central area. When you're traveling in London and enjoying the uh, local people scene, there's lots of good ways to connect with people. You can go to the pubs, obviously. You can go to antique markets. Does that work for you? Yeah, we've got wonderful antique markets, but you have to be an early riser. How do you know which antique market would be more interesting for you? Uh, Bermondsey one, which is on a Friday, but it starts at about 5 in the morning. Bermondsey. And that's on the, the South Bank, near to London Bridge. Okay. It's a superb market. Gillian, you are a blue badge guide. Yes. And you say that with pride. Absolutely. As a tourist, as a consumer of travel information, why would it matter to me if you're a blue badge guide or just somebody who's taken groups around? Because I'm registered with the London Tourist Board, and it means that I've passed lots of exams in all of the main sites, like the British Museum, the Westminster Abbey, so I've reached the required standard. Is there a problem in London with um, ill-prepared guides taking people around and not doing a good job? Uh, not blue badge ones, no. Right. That's what I mean. Yes. Uh, non, non-regulated guides that haven't had the training. Uh, it happens, yes. Mm-hmm. But we're quite well known now. We're getting much better recognition for all our work. That's great. Gillian Chadwick from London, thank you very much for your help. And uh, I think you've got me thinking about London. And maybe that's where I'm going to go on my next trip. I think you should. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Put together a decidedly British sensibility in the not-quite-subtropical Atlantic, and you'll find pirate history, celebrity hideaways, stylishly goofy shorts, and one end of a mysterious train. We'll follow the Gulf Stream to Bermuda, coming right up as we travel with Rick Steves. Eight seven seven three 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 Rick, or email us at radio at ricksteves.com. I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And right now we're traveling to Bermuda. I've got with me Rosemary Jones, who writes the Moon Handbook to Bermuda. And Rosemary Jones has written for many publications. She's written a book called Bermuda: Five Centuries, a Coffee Table History of the Island, and she is a Bermudian. Rosemary, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. Glad yeah. to be here. Now, a Bermudian, I've never met anybody who is a Bermudian. What do you mean exactly by that? Well, there's not too many of us. I guess um, Bermuda's population is about 65,000. But um, I was born here of British parents, grew up in Bermuda, and um, moved back here, I guess, about 11 years ago. But you actually have an English passport? Um, I have a Bermudian passport, um, mm-hmm. but I have British rights as well. Um, I see. We are 
one of the oldest um, British dependent territories, one of the last ones remaining. And under that um, umbrella, we also uh, get British citizenship or rights to um, to live there and work there. I'm typical West Coast American. I don't know much about Bermuda. It's one time zone east of New York. Give me just the uh, the general uh, lay of the land uh, from a tourism point of view. Well, it's a small island. It's um, just 21 square miles. We are 90 minutes from New York by air, and uh, it's particularly uh, popular with East Coasters for that very reason, that you can come down here for a weekend, and that's a, a popular type of holiday down here. Contrary to, to a lot of popular opinion, we're not part of the Caribbean, so our weather is is a little different in that we have very distinct seasons. Um, it's not hot all year round here, so people expecting you know a, a hot winter holiday probably won't get one. But in the summer, um, it's comfortably hot or uncomfortably hot? Very hot, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, Michael, yeah, pretty got, similar to the Caribbean. We got an email from Michael in uh, Maryland, and uh, Michael says you can fly from Baltimore for $79 each way. So there's some uh, discount flights from the East Coast over to Bermuda. Yep, and that is a fairly new um, thing. They've, I think one of the biggest complaints about traveling to Bermuda in the past and and for Bermudians traveling out um, are the airfares, which are really quite steep. Until recently, there haven't been you know great deals, but but they are starting now. Tell me just real quickly about the the language, the visas, the health, the uh, expense of traveling there, and so on. If somebody's just dro- dropping in uh, for a vacation as a as a traveler, when you're here, it's it's fairly expensive. Um, although there are ways to enjoy a you know a, a reasonable costing holiday. Are there cheap um, alternatives to hotels or little funky one star hotels and so on? There are there are there are lots of um, locally run guest houses which are are good quality and well run so you don't have to start uh, stay at the you know the five star resorts um, restaurants there are lots of um, of expensive ones and inexpensive ones I think it's mostly the getting here um, that costs a lot and there are duties and and things like that as well now when you get there are you there's a lot of people nervous about hurricanes and uh, all this w- violent weather. My dad was actually out uh, on a cruise, and they were stopping in uh, Bermuda, and it was right after seeing the perfect storm, and he got so nervous he flew home. He left, he, he abandoned the cruise ship and flew home from Bermuda. Um, what, what is this story? I mean, you're a little tiny island out in the middle of the Atlantic. Uh, is there violent weather there? Um, there, I, there, are, there are violent storms, um, but the, the real problematic um, weather for, for flying in and out for, that really affects tourism is during hurricane season. Mm-hmm. Now, that lasts most of the summer, but we really tend only to get um, feel the effects of that in the late summer, August and September. It never traditionally has been very um, bad, but occasionally, every few years, we do get a bad one. And our last really bad storm was Hurricane Fabian in 2003. Okay. But we uh, Bermuda's pretty much recovered from, from that now. I've got some people on the line here. I'm talking with Rosemary Jones, who's the author of The Moon Handbook to Bermuda, and we're talking uh, with Erica in Atlanta. Yeah, what's on your mind, Erica? Well, we've been going to Bermuda about 20 years. Uh, we got married there, and uh, sometimes twice a year, and very often with family. And the, the biggest problem we have is something you've already mentioned, but uh, we've not been able to overcome it well, which is the airfares. Because we, we do book about a year in advance because we have found one of those great little guest places to stay in. Hmm. And it's worth it because the price is great and it's a wonderful place. We have fixed dates every year. And it's really a, you know, a gamble whether the airfare is going to be affordable um, each year. We do try and save frequent flyer miles and so forth. But some years we've been stuck as much as $600 from the East Coast. Round trip. Yeah, now I'm in Atlanta. We have only one flight a day wow. on one airline. But even the folks that are coming from New York, our family, um, last year several of them got stuck over $600, you know, which is a lot because we can go to Europe for that too. Sure. Rosemary, any, any help for, uh, for Erica? Well, it's, as, we, as we said, it's a problem that's sort of um, dogged Bermuda for, for a while. And I think a lot of um, people in the tourism industry here are always pushing and, and lobbying for for um, new ways to um, get people here more cheaply. There's been some discussions between government and various competitive airlines, such as JetBlue, um, recently in the last year or so, which, um, again, the aim being to try to bring in some new flights and um, cheaper fares. Now, Erica, you've been going back at least once a year for 20 years. Is it just a chance for you to 
get a change of scene and, and hang out, or do you find uh, sightseeing and the culture at endearing? Uh, how, I would say it's both. We did get married there, so it's a little bit sentimental. Also, because it's so close, my husband doesn't like long flights, and even from Atlanta, it's only a little over two hours. So it's very easy, and yet it's a world away. Um, so, you know, quite an easy trip over. And then by going so many years, we've learned how to do things that aren't very touristy, the little nooks and crannies and small details, and we've met people. Um, and other family who join us fell in love with it as well, and it's just a great place for all of us to get together. Well, um, talk about that for a minute, Erica, the non-touristy stuff, because I imagine most people that go over there and they all do the same thing. Yeah, I think they do. The best thing we do when we get there, we immediately start getting the local newspaper, the Royal Gazette, and we look at all the events that are listed and the news that's happening. We do other little things like going to, to local restaurants that aren't touristy, and they also tend to be lower cost, um, and little coffee shops and places like that where we meet people and talk to them. Um, fortunately, we don't really ride mopeds much, mm. so we don't get around to all the little nooks and crannies we might like to get to, but we do just often pick a corner and go there. Erica, how British do you find it? Is it like tea and scones and fish and chips all the time, or what? <laughs> uh, well, the place we stay is run by uh, British folks, so to us it's very British. Um, but there's also you know, the, the sort of West Indian Bermudian uh, influence as well, and we love the combination. And to me, it looks like the Mediterranean because it's hilly and there's you know, light-colored pastel and houses with white roofs. So to me, it's very cosmopolitan, Mediterranean, Caribbean, British, all mixed up together, which I really love. That's a good mix. Yeah. It's hard, yeah. It's hard to find, you know, just a couple hours from the East Coast. <laughs> all right. Erica, thanks so much for your call. Thank you. Yeah. We had an email from Aaron in Portland, Oregon, and, and uh, Rosemary, uh, Aaron asks, what's with the shorts? <laughs> Talk about the Bermuda shorts. <laughs> It's funny, the, um, just recently at New York Fashion Week, um, our tourism department was up there, um, and they had a designer, I think, contracted to um, design a, a line with um, Bermuda shorts included, so there was a lot of um, press about it recently. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, there, it's one of those iconic features of the island um, that everyone has heard about, even if they haven't been here. Um, and it's actually true. The guys do wear Bermuda shorts. Um, politicians wear them to Parliament, and people wear them to the boardroom, and um, they are sort of a, a fashion statement here that um, when you put them on, you immediately fit into the local scene. So you're a you're a Bermudian if you Bermudian if you're wearing your shorts. That's uh, right. Like a, like a Scotsman <laughs> would wear his kilt to the new Parliament in Edinburgh. Right. All right. We got Maria on the line in Pittsburgh. Thanks for your call. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Um, we went to Bermuda for the first time uh, in July, last July, and we just absolutely loved it and can't wait to go back. What did you like so much about it? Well, it's it's absolutely beautiful. The weather's perfect. Everyone is so nice and polite. Um, you don't get the feeling of, um, like, desperate poverty that you get on some of the Caribbean islands, mm-hmm. which um, my children really, you know, felt uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just, it, it's so small uh, it just seems like a one big neighborhood, and um, we wanted to take a beach vacation. Um, a lot of times um, we go to Europe for our summer vacations, but we wanted to do a beach vacation that was close to home, but I didn't really want to do anything just on the coastal United States. We want, I wanted something that would feel like we were in a foreign country, and you definitely, as soon as you touch down in Bermuda, feel like you're in a foreign country. Wow. Maria, you're a good spokesperson for Bermuda. <laughs> What about beaches in Bermuda? Well, the, the interesting thing about beaches in Bermuda is that, you know, they're not private beaches connected to hotels or resorts. All of the beaches in Bermuda are free to, and open to all people. So, you know, you can stay in, anywhere and use any of the beaches, and there's great access from, you know, the buses, so you could just, you know, get on a bus and go to a new beach or a different beach every day. and. You know, the thing that, the knock against Bermuda is that it's always been so expensive or it's been like kind of a honeymoon type, right. you know, place. But we, I wanted to prove that it was, that it was doable and it could be an economic family vacation. And I think that it was probably one of our most economic, believe it or not. We have two children. Our daughter was 19 at the time and our son uh, 17, so we're not the kind of family that could go and stay for a week in an expensive hotel room with, like, two double beds. That just wouldn't work for us. 
and we were able to rent a beautiful two-bedroom house right on the water for uh, $950 American mm. dollars. Boy, a that's week. a that's a nice vacation. A thousand bucks for your apartment, right? You or couldn't do that on the... on the Jersey Shore. No, this is kind of a fun mix of it's sort of halfway between uh, America and England, physically and culturally. Right, right. The funny thing, though, is um, I have to tell you that I did not inquire as to whether uh, they had air conditioning. Right. And the house did not. (laughs) So, um, you know, that might be something that someone might want to remember to ask about. I guess I just assumed that Mm -hmm. it would. Mm -hmm. Um, So it it was very, very hot while we were there, like, you know, in the upper 90s. So you wish you would have paid a little more, perhaps, in that air con. Right. Yeah. Or, since there's such a nice breeze and we were right by the water, yeah. a lot of the main rooms, they were okay with fans. Right. But um, the bedrooms, it would have been great if they'd had, like, room air conditioners. And I, sure. I noticed as we were taking the bus around that a lot of houses did have just, like, room air conditioners in the bedrooms. That's something to think about anywhere these days. Maria, thank you very much for your call. Oh, you're welcome. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Rosemary Jones, who writes the Moon Handbook to Bermuda. And uh, we've got Janine on the line in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. Thanks for your call. What's on your mind? Sure. I'll, sh- I'll share my experience or our, our family's experience with uh, Bermuda. And I'm just going to reiterate a lot of what's been said just with a different twist because we chose to cruise twice just directly to Bermuda. And we are on the East Coast as well. Right. Uh, one time leaving from New Jersey, one time from New York. And we made that choice strictly because of the price. Huh. Because with the airfare at, it, at it, what it was um, at over 600 we could cruise for the week for about, you know, double that. Okay, which so. Which would include all your, you know. And from the East Coast of America, how yeah. long of a cruise is it to get to Bermuda? Um, it was a week, but really they stretch it out because right. they, um, <laughs> it takes, I think you, we would leave on a Saturday and get in there on Monday. But then we'd have to pull out on Friday. So what happened was we fell absolutely in love with the island, as the others are speaking of. And we have traveled quite quite a bit everywhere and um, love the beach, love the Caribbean. But once again, our children also were uncomfortable with some of the, I mean, we you were know, actually being followed. That's a good point. <laughs> you know, point. raise your hair lady, that kind of thing, and the kids. Yeah. Um, so you don't have any of that to deal with. And the beaches are phenomenal. And we were adventurous in that we had no problem about renting the mopeds. Okay, so that's a, a fun Right, thing. you cannot rent uh, cars on the island, but we, we didn't have any problem with that, and we quite enjoyed it, and we're so mobile to be able to to get all around the island and look hmm. you know, look at all the beaches. That's a fun enjoy. family activity to be mopedding around, too. It was great, it was great. Yeah. Uh, there are no cars for rent. So if you're a visitor, you can't rent a car, and that's strictly because the roads are so crowded already. Um, Bermudians uh, or residents who live here are limited to one car per household, again, because there's so many people for the land mass. Uh, visitors can, can rent mopeds or scooters, um, and there's buses and taxi service as well. Sounds great. The roads are, are somewhat narrow in places and very twisty, but, uh, yeah. you know, you just got to keep it slow and wear your helmet and uh, have a little plan because mm-hmm. we were like little, uh, you know, actually my husband, father, duck leading the, <laughs> the ducklings. Oh, yeah. But um, we found a website. Am I able to say the name of that? You sure are. Okay, mm-hmm. bermudarentals.com, and we found a place that is about... Um, they have a number of listings, and they seem very nice. They're, they, they're out of Toronto, actually, mm-hmm. and, um, and it's not on the water. <laughs> I want to remind our listeners that um, I'm a guidebook writer, and Rosemary Jones is a guidebook writer, and we work very hard to make our guidebooks 20 bucks really well spent, and mm-hmm. I'm sure you'll save a lot of money in accommodations and getting there and, and get more value right. out of your time as well by using a good guidebook. Hey, I want to uh, thank you for your call, Janine, and sure. I wish you continued happy travels. Uh, Rosemary, I, this concept, uh, several people have mentioned, they're more comfortable in Bermuda because their kids are feel awkward about the the economic uh, hardships in farther right. south in the Caribbean. I felt that myself. I'm, I'm into reality travel, and, and I don't want to skirt the, the harsh realities of life and structural poverty and all this sort of thing, but these cruises in the Caribbean, it's this la-la land around the cruise ship where everybody is, everything yeah. is cute and lots of uh, selling okay. and so on, and then you get a few blocks later and it's uh, real tough lifestyles. Uh, in Bermuda, if, if you want to if you don't want to deal with that, Bermuda sounds like a, a, a nice option. Sure. Well, I mean, of course, Bermuda isn't without its its problems as well. But um, certainly on an economic level, um, it, it's really not comparable to much of the Caribbean at all. Well, um, 65,000. The level of affluence here is, is pretty high. It's, it's yeah. known for 
having one of the highest standards of living in the world. So um, it's really quite a different place um, in that regard. You'll pay a little more uh, because the higher standard of living, but yeah, 65,000 people eating tea and scones wearing Bermuda shorts. I mean, that sounds pretty, <laughs> pretty comfortable. I should correct the, um, the tea and scones thing. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, it's, it's funny because um, people do think that we're very British, and we are, and, and I think as... Um, uh, one of your guests said, uh, staying with the British family, obviously you're going to see more of that. But um, I think in a lot of the guidebooks that I've seen written recently, um, American writers particularly tend to sort of um, fuel the notion that we all stop work at 4 o'clock and have a, a big British tea. Mm-hmm. I think Bermudians um, find a bit laughable. But um, it's uh, like you said, I think it's a, an interesting mixture of um, North American and, and British in, in every way. Um, a lot of the cultural influences we have are American because of TV and uh, movies and popular culture. But our history, of course, is colonial colonial British. So. A lot of famous celebrities have used it as their regular vacation retreat, I think. Artists and writers and um, presidents and um, all the, you know, it's it's been a who's who of the American elite, the Roosevelt's, the Rockefeller's, the Astor's. Um, and today we get a lot of Hollywood um, visitors um, singers John Travolta and Leanne Rimes, Ross Perot, Michael Bloomberg comes down for weekends. Is nobody worried about the, what about this Bermuda Triangle? Aren't they worried about vanishing? It's funny, it's, it's um, a phenomenon that um, everyone, um, no matter whether they know anything else about Bermuda, the Bermuda Triangle is out there, but um, it's so rarely talked about in Bermuda or, or really certainly not as a, as a real thing to be afraid of. I guess some um, it, it the phenomenon is links Bermuda, Miami, and um, Puerto Rico in this zone where a lot of um, bizarre occurrences um, have happened: planes vanishing, ships vanishing. There's been huh. umpteen number of um, uh, theories on why that's happened. Okay, but, so um, those are the corners of the triangle: Bermuda, Miami, and Puerto Rico. That's right. Okay, yeah. but nobody. Uh, it's kind of like worrying about the Loch Ness monster eating you. Exactly. Okay, yeah, so we don't need um, to worry about that. It's sort of used as a uh, as a sort of titillation for tourists here yeah. more than anything. Um, there's a few businesses here that they're called Triangle something or other. Yeah, but um, but um, it's usually just for fun. Hey, Rosemary Jones, author of The Moon Handbook to Bermuda, thank you very much for sharing a little bit of your uh, beautiful corner of the world. Thanks, Rick. Enjoyed being here. Thanks. There's a place in the sun where Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.